Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, the owner of Extreme Human Performance. I did the certification for Eat to Perform, uh, trained clients online, instructor for Globe University, a bunch of other cool stuff coming up, and I'm in South Padre, Texas, where there is... No freaking wind to kiteboard. So <laughs> <laughs> that's becoming like a hot spot for you, huh? Yeah, I it was. Um, yeah, I usually try to come down here at least in each fall and spring. Um, usually spring's a little bit better, but usually fall there's some wind. Yesterday was pretty borderline. I had some stuff to do, so I probably could have sneaked out towards the end of the day. But um, yeah, hoping for wind today. Although forecast looks like bubkiss, but the saving grace is the forecast is usually horribly wrong each day. So. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's how, still hope. So how do you lift when you go down there, or do you just focus on, on kiteboarding and stuff? Um, if I'm riding, I usually don't lift too much, because I'll go out and ride for like three hours at a time. Yeah. And I may just do some bodyweight push-ups or whatever. Um, usually the first two days, just getting here, I'm kind of wrecked from travel, so I don't do too much. Um, but today, there's like a, there's a local gym like not too far from where I'm staying. I went across the bridge. Oh. Um, so I usually go over there, and it's... Uh, the one across the bridge is like really old school. Like they try to run the air conditioning, but everything's so hot and humid. And it's they have like the weird machines you've never seen before, and lots of rusty equipment. <laughs> oh, <laughs> nice. Um, which is not bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's the the fine line between the the borderline area where you lay down on the bench and you're not really sure if you want to grab any heavier dumbbells because it seems wobbly and makes creaky noises. You know, to the I like the old hardcore places, but and you start wondering about if you're going to crash through the floor and uh, get a little, a little yeah. nervous. <laughs> There's a fine line between hardcore and just busted, you know. Yep. <laughs> yep. And that one's like right on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me, once I, I had some, well, heavy for me, dumbbells. I had some 120s yeah. and I was on an incline bench. I might have mentioned this on the show in the past. And the incline bench I was on just completely shattered underneath me. Oh. It is completely luck that I didn't just eat one of those dumbbells right to the forehead, you know, because I wouldn't even be here. And you know what? These mom-pop places, like, they were lucky that I – it was just me because I I just got up and walked away. I'm like, you might want to fix that. (laughs) (laughs) Feeling pretty studly like I just crushed this machine, you know. But but the truth is, yeah, I mean, they could have had their pantsuit off, you know. Uh, I don't know, whatever. It's, yeah, Yeah. fine line, fine line. places where you – Kind of wonder about getting any contractual diseases and stuff make you a little more nervous. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, all right, everybody. We, uh, Doctor Nelson, and I, we're going to talk uh, a little bit later about lifters' maladies. You know, different just problems, physical issues you have, not musculoskeletal, because that gets a lot of attention. But what's the other crap that we deal with? And before I hit the record button, Mike and I were just sort of. 
you know, shooting the shit about the, you know, let's just think about the last 30 years. And we made a list really fast. So uh, we'll talk about um, some of the maladies that we face and then a tip or two about how you might fix it. But having said that, we do have a little bit of uh, listener mail and uh, a tweet. So I'm going to encourage people to tweet us too. If you want to tweet us at, um, between 9 and 10 a.m. Eastern on Saturday mornings, I, I'll check my phone. I mean, you can actually get in on the conversation. Uh, but this is a tweet from earlier in the week. Let me start with this one because I think we addressed this in part with another uh, listener just a week or two ago. But I don't know if you got to chime in on this one, Mike. This week on Twitter. This is from Chris from Twitter. He said, do you believe that to get stronger, you need to eat more food so you can move more weight? Is weight gain really necessary? Mm. What do you think? I would say since he's asking specifically about strength, I would say in generally no, because we know there's other adaptations and you can split hairs about looking at weight, you know, in theory, if you can gain a pound of muscle or lean body mass and then drop a pound of fat, right? So you're recompositioning by a pound. That's technically not going to change your weight. Um, so I would say that to a point, I think you can get away by getting stronger um, without necessarily having to gain weight. But at some point, I think we've talked about in shows past, too, that it's going to become increasingly harder and harder to do that. And then the second part of the equation is if you're changing body composition, you know, like we've talked about on the show before. Oh, right. You did. You know, maybe you al- allow yourself to go up, you know, 10 pounds or something like that, try to keep as much of that lean body mass. Maybe you gain 50%. And hell, if I gain 50% at this point, I'm like super happy, you know, so five pounds of lean tissue, five pounds of fat, doesn't take me that long to lose five pounds of fat, but it'll take me months and months and months and months to gain five pounds of lean body mass. Good point. Yeah. When I look at this, I actually think about some of the metabolic issues too. And I don't think I brought this up last time, but a, yes, mass moves mass, as Phil will say, you know, and like you said, yeah, you got five pounds more mass, you should be, I mean, muscle mass in this case, you should sure. be stronger, and moving heavier weights should facilitate further gains, you would think. I mean, hence the whole bulking idea, I think. Mm-hmm. But metabolically, all that extra food is going to ensure that you have nice, full muscles, you know, bristling with glycogen and water and hydrated full glycogen sorts of muscle tissue and you know anabolic hormones are encouraged with the extra intake and so i think there's hormonal and sort of substrate you know like carb storage issues that play in your favor too you know so and you may not have that if you're trying to keep your weight down while you get stronger you know because you're not going to be super compensated and loaded with glycogen and you know and things like that so yeah, and I just find by having an excess of food, it's easier to manage stress. You know, in general with, you know, people that I have that are, you know, cutting back or even a handful of physique competitors I've worked with, everybody knows that as you get lower and lower, you know, Lonnie, from doing shows, that your stress just goes higher and higher because you're trying to train around the same. Well, at some point you have to scale volume back, but you're just doing it on dramatically less fuel that's coming in. So that in and of itself can be a stressor where if you remove that, you know, now you can use, you know, food and, you know, like you said, hormonal things like insulin, things of that nature to kind of 
counteract some of the the stress either from your lifestyle or just from the training itself. Right. Even testosterone to a small extent, I've seen some really interesting studies in wrestlers and you know different power sports where they if they don't eat enough, their luteinizing hormone starts to fall. And listeners, if you're not familiar, if your LH falls. Uh, your testosterone levels eventually ebb a little, so you got to eat mm-hmm. even even on the androgen side of things, at least to a mild extent. So, um, and I think that's why you know we talk about weight gain leading to strength because there's a metabolic, there's hormonal, and they're just s- simple physics reasons that help. It's not like you said, Mike. It's not impossible. And uh, now that I'm th- remembering this, you did mention about like cross sectional area of a muscle. You know, there are some things that you could. Do even the penation of a muscle, the angle of the muscle fibers yeah, as it hypertrophies, change. yeah, it will change a little and aid strength. So if you're not going to gain weight, you know, it's just a little bit harder row to hoe kind of thing. But you know, there it is. Yeah, and one thing I'm looking into this is actually from talking to a researcher is the whole cross sectional area versus strength. Um, so he's going to send me a couple studies. And I'm going to pull up a bunch more, but. His opinion was that the cross-sectional area may not be as related to strength as we believe. Um, so I'm still in the process of trying to check into that a, a little bit more. So I eh, may have some different thoughts in a couple months. But yeah. it's yeah. kind of classically been assumed that a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle. But I'm not so sure that's as linearly tightly related as we think. And Good there's call. probably a massive variability in that too. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Like mass does move mass, but I have seen smaller people that are strong as hell. And you're like, oh, how do they yeah. do that? Like some of the power lifters in the back room of the gym, I've touched on this before, but I'm thinking about one individual in particular. He's very thin, borderline waif. And I'll see him do a couple of reps with 405 and I'm like, in the squat. I'm like, what? Like, oh, nice. How did how did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And you can't see, like, mechanical factors like, you know, attachment points and things of that nature, true. too, when you're looking yeah. at one individual to the next. Right. That's right. That's right. Some people, their, intest- their um, tendons just insert so distally on the joint that it just yeah. gives them more strength. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do the math on that, a very small uh, difference there in terms of uh, attachment point because of the mechanical advantage makes a massive difference to the amount of weight you can lift. That Oh, yeah. When I teach strength and conditioning, I show a – it's from uh, the NSCA textbook, the Bailey yeah. and Earl one. Yeah, I don't know if I'm pronouncing their names right. But, yeah, it, it actually calculates – it shows you a little bit there about – how you might lose a little bit of speed or, you know, like uh, radial, like angular mm-hmm. velocity, but you gain so much strength with just small, like a half a centimeter or a centimeter change, you know, of the tendon inserting further down the joint. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. Uh, what else do we have here? Let me fire this one. This is uh, from listener uh, Chris, uh, a different Chris. Uh, I purchased a book a while back after hearing it mentioned on your podcast, the book is The Future of the Body by Michael Murphy. I'm pretty sure it was mentioned by a guest on the podcast. My memory seems to think it was a more mature guy. I have scrolled through the podcast archive. I can't work out the guest uh, or which show the book was mentioned uh, in. I think due to its coverage of untapped human potential. And you know what? I do not have that episode in front of me. Phil would know. Uh, but we did have a guest, an, an older guest on the show, and I've got to go back and see which episode this was. Uh, but yeah, he was really delving into 
sort of the, the almost the philosophy, you know, self-actualization issues. And uh, listeners really liked that episode, too. In fact, Phil actually started a podcast with him for a, a little while, but um, it, it was an interesting topic. Uh, I I don't know about Michael Murphy, and I, like I said, I'd have to go back and look at that episode myself, but uh, there was discussion of uh, Buddhism and uh, Frank Zane and, you know, a lot of the thinkers in the sport, you know, so um, keep looking, brother, uh, Chris, I'll take a look myself, uh, but... We just plopped down here in front of the mic, so I haven't had a chance to go look at that particular episode. But uh, it, it is an interesting concept about untapped human potential. I mean, that whole concept of it, it, if you believe it, you can achieve it. It sounds cliche, but uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Because if you don't believe you know, that you're going to reach your potential, you're not. So, Yeah, I always think that it's it's kind of... You see it time and time again, wherever their sort of subconscious mind is at, they will drive themselves in that direction. You know, and I've seen some pretty high-level athletes who, you know, after a while just really didn't believe they should be successful, which seems kind of bizarro. And pretty much whenever they would do well, they would find some way to kind of unconsciously sabotage themselves, Oh, uh, which is fascinating to see someone who has a lot of very good physical potential, genetics, you know, whatever, but they just can't seem to to get everything together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so stay tuned, Chris. Uh, keep digging around. Uh, it it would have been oh wow. We've done the show for so long. I, I hesitate to even ago, say a it? year or two ago because that doesn't narrow it down very much. <laughs> uh, gosh, yeah, because we're we're like eight years deep into this, so uh, I'd have to go look at that one myself. But. Um, it's a good topic and probably something we should bring up some more. I, I've always wanted to bring in more sports psych stuff. but uh, Mike, now, you have an email from a listener, I believe, about strength yeah. training for rehab or? Yeah, this is from uh, Ryan. It says, hey, Rob, rest of the Iron Radio team. My mother is going into surgery in a month or two for an anterior hip replacement. And I was wondering what your opinions are on using strength training as a rehabilitation tool. I'll be the first to admit that I'm in no way qualified to make medical recommendations, but I'm also not shy about showing research papers to a doctor or a physical therapist. Do you have any information on the subject? I have been able to find information about rapid recovery post-op, but the article, and she's got a link here, uh, focused mostly on walking. This is certainly good, but my thoughts turn to future injury prevention through strength training. I found plenty of other articles on strength training after cardiovascular surgeries, and the improvement of daily life in the elderly. Yet post-op studies seem to be lacking. I'm not trying to make my mom into a power lifter. I just like to help her walk easily and keep walking easily as long as I can. Any thoughts, articles, or discussions would be appreciated. Hmm. This would be a good one for Phil. (laughs) Yeah, Um, it would. Well, what are your thoughts initially? My, My general thought is... You know, just from what I've seen is that most places now do a pretty good job of yanking you out of bed and getting you to walk as soon as possible. Um, depends on the type of, you know, hip replacement and stuff that they do. Um, for a while, I actually, that was the area I was going to go into when I was doing my master's was in more of the biomechanics area. I was actually in solid mechanics. So I explained to people it was just the advanced study of how shit breaks, <laughs> um, looking at internal bone fixation. Uh, so I got to see a couple uh, total hip replacements, 
And uh, you may not never want to watch one of those because it's incredibly brutal um, in terms of a, a total hip replacement. You mean the surgery uh, itself looks brutal? The surgery itself, yeah. yeah. I mean, they they take that thing and they literally pound it down the femoral canal, and it's uh, yeah, it's interesting like a, to like say a the railroad least. spike. You know? Yeah, and that's what it looks like. You know, and and some of the orthopedic guys are like, "Well, we're done with the main carpentry work now." <laughs> I'm like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, usually they'll you know get them out of bed as soon as they can. You know, if you go like way back in time, you know, the thought was, "Well, we want everything to heal. Mm-hmm. We want to wait as long as possible, even if you look at stuff for ACL knee replacements, things of that nature." And what they found was that in general, you're just starting to to atrophy away. You know, we know that the body will remodel along lines of stress. So even if you can get them up, get them walking, get them moving as much as you can. Um, I would ask the physician, you know, what their plan is for physical therapy. Uh, if you can, talk to the physical therapist. You know, just kind of see what their plan is. Um, I would ask them if there's any, you know, weight training component. Most of the time there probably is. Obviously, there's going to be walking and mobility and getting the range of motion back and things of that nature. But historically what I've seen and experienced myself with physical therapy is that they'll usually kind of say you're good to go when you're probably 80-ish percent. Um, And for some people that may be good enough. Um, My bias is to try to get back to 100% as close as you can, uh, even if someone is a little bit older just because we know that that's going to start to, you know, with age, everything is going to kind of degrade. So I would ask him about, you know, what, how do they determine, you know, she's back to where she should be. Is there anything else they can do beyond that? And then I'd also ask him if she's, you know, ahead of schedule with where she's progressing. Is it kind of a time-based thing where they have X amount of time only, or is it kind of more of an outcome-based type thing? Because um, I had years ago when I, tore up my right ankle uh, snowboarding. Uh, luckily, I knew the physical therapist, so I went in, and they just, for insurance reasons, and that's unfortunately what mostly governs it, Yeah, they just measured range of motion. And I started the therapy early because I paid her cash to go to her house to, to do it before I could get into her clinic. Um, and literally within like two weeks, you're like, well, your range of motion says you're good enough. I'm like, it still kind of feels like a partially moving club. I'm like, uh, maybe we should check that again. So, oh, it's a little <laughs> bit lower. Okay, you get to stay for another four weeks. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. So. I actually had that done um, when I tore my triceps. They, mm-hmm. they're they like, oh, well, you know, it's limited time frame, right, because that was a tear. Yep. Of course, you only have about 10 days to two weeks before the scar tissue just ruins the ability to get yep. in there and repair it really well. And uh, they're like, I don't know, maybe you can just let it scar it down. You know, you have like eighty yeah. percent function, sixty to eighty <laughs> percent, and I'm just like blanching it, you know, like aghast. You know what? No, yeah. repair it. I wanted some staples. I want something anchoring that baby down. You know, just let it retract and scar down. But you're right. The performance demands uh, for the Gen Pop, they're okay with people just mostly oh, yeah. recovering, whether it be after surgery or a, a you know a tear like that. And for most of us, that's not acceptable, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so even with, like, the same thing with the ankle, even once I stayed longer and it was good, it still took me on my own. And granted, back then, I didn't really know what I was was doing and should have consulted with someone. But it still took me another, 
nine months to get back to close to 100%. Oh, um, yeah. And I did see another physical therapist, and he was basically like, oh, yeah, for what you did, you'll probably have osteoarthritis in a year, and you'll probably never get full mobility back. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> nice way of pissing on my leg and telling me it's raining. <laughs> right, no doubt. So matter of fact, you know. Yeah, um, and he was technically correct by most of the studies that you look at because most people just never do anything with it again. So, Right, yeah. Yeah. My thoughts about this, and again, this is discounting the rare mom who is, is kick ass. But yeah. I think you got to be careful when you're dealing with your mom. You know, if she's not like we were mentioning earlier, eating plentifully and sort of in an anabolic state, and she may actually get some some of the growth and repair may be a little slower than what you might expect for yourself. So we do have to be careful applying um, our standards. You yeah, timelines. Yeah, to gen pop kinds of situations, you know, so I'll just echo that. I will also say along the lines, there are some uh, orthopods who they don't even want a physical therapist cranking on their repair right away. And other mm-hmm. ones and other ones really do. And yep. and Phil always scares me. He he knows this. Like he rehabs <laughs> so aggressively because, you know, he like he tore his bicep he's back to like maximal curling within a matter of weeks and that makes me cringe a little you know but i think it depends on a person's hormonal state and their training status and so you got to think about where your mom is you know and hopefully a good physical therapist especially one who's familiar with sports med they will consider you know some of those things but like you said mike almost sadly money and insurance dollars are going to dictate uh, quite a bit of the rehab too, but you just don't want to interfere. I think with the early stages of of what's being done, it's more that secondary phase after the insurance money runs out that you're deciding strength wise what can I do, you know, with her to help her continue to make that last twenty percent uh, yeah. repair. You know, yeah. And I'd say the other big thing too, and I won't name any names about big name facilities that I've worked with some people from in Minnesota, but they're usually really good at being hyper-focused on the hip replacement and not the other side, right? So if you oh. get your right hip done, they're very hyper-focused, and for good reason, right? You want to get that back to function. You want to get it back up to speed. But because we know you use both legs and your whole body when you walk, a lot of times you will have pretty massive compensations in other parts of the body, and especially on the opposite side that they usually never pay attention to. So I'm always biased to more sort of branches of physical therapy that look more, yeah, I get that you know hip back up to as high function as we can, but let's not forget that it's attached to the rest of the body. Because mm. I've seen on more than one occasion, you know, people have come in where their left hip is all screwed up or their left shoulder or something else that, and I said, well, didn't they ever you know look at that? And they're like, Nope, they said it's not related. My right hip is perfect. I'm like, well, there's something going. <laughs> you yeah, you're gonna go compensate. Back. There's something going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, no, good stuff. Uh, yeah. So that's the listener mail. Um, let's let's go ahead and go to break. We'll, we're going to come back. We have quite a few things to talk about. Different maladies that lifters suffer, and then uh, some tips for the day on how you might consider fixing those bad boys. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. 
If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Fall and soon winter will be upon us. As the holidays approach and your thoughts turn to giving, please consider your friends here at ironradio.org. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio type format, the show is listener supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 per month, you can become a supporting member keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page, or click the donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Thanks for helping to create a place for better internet programming for all strength and muscle sports, and... Happy Holidays! Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's lawnman 7 on Twitter, if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes, and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we are back. It's uh, Dr. Nelson and myself, Dr. Lowry, and we are going to talk about some of the maladies 
that lifters face. Uh, it, this may have been something we tang- tangentially touched upon in past episodes uh, long ago, but there's a long list of things that we can talk about that, that are the dark side of kind of lifting. And again, not just uh, the kind of surgical repair or musculoskeletal problem like we just touched on, actually, but the other stuff. And uh, part of the reason for this is I was giving a lecture on gastroenterology in a, in a patho class, and we were talking about um, different issues that, like a pressurized uh, viscera or, you know, abdominal pressure can actually worsen, like GERD, which is gastroesophageal reflux disease, right? So if you have acid reflux and you're, you're bending over deeply or you're creating lots of pressure, you got a problem with the lower sphincterum, your uh, esophagus there, you know, there are some issues, uh, hemorrhoids, stuff like that. So let, let's start with some of the gastric stuff, Mike. So uh, have you ever struggled with GERD uh, reflux, or have you known anybody, and did they have to change what they ate or lifted to deal with it? Um, actually, not specifically, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I've had people with a lot of general uh, digestive issues. I mean, I've had that in the past, too, and worked with the functional med doc, and Worked with a few people post that. Um, my only general comment is, after spending so much time in airports lately, if you ever go to the restroom in airports, you realize that how bad pretty much everyone's digestion is because it <laughs> doesn't smell good and you hear the worst noises like known to man. That's funny. <laughs> so yeah. I think in general people have major digestive issues, and even with clients now, I have to ask them multiple times and. You know, because they're like, oh, no, it's fine. Because, you know, most people don't really want to talk about it. And then they assume because all their friends have digestion issues that, well, that's just normal. That's just part of being a human. Mm -hmm. Like, no, no, you shouldn't spend 20 minutes in the bathroom each day you go. Right. It should be a rather simple process. (laughs) Right. No, I hear you. Um, Well, you know, when it comes to reflux disease and that kind of thing, similar to what you said about other gastric symptoms, people just tend to, try to dismiss it, you know, but you do have to be careful. If that goes on for a long time, you can actually change uh, the cells. You can get a metaplasia. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a signpost on the way to cancer. Not necessarily cancerous now, but you'll get, it's called Barrett's esophagus, and it'll actually, that all that acid, you know, your stomach's protected by mucus, but if it's coming up into your esophagus, that's not as protected by mucus, and you can get sort of these precancerous changes. So you need to address that, whether it's with some, Antacids, I don't know, proton pump inhibitors. There's lots of meds, and so you don't just endure that, you know. Uh, on the other end of the GI tract, like with hemorrhoids and that sort of thing, if you're going to lift heavy, it, it, that kind of pressure is going to worsen that potentially, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, as a rule of thumb, I mean, because let's face it, um, bleeding around your backside is very scary to a lot of people. If it's bright red. It's probably there near the end. I think a lot of people need to realize it's probably not some intestinal polyps or something that's a little scarier uh, if it's higher up in your system because then by the time it comes out, it's more brown or black. It's not bright red. So if it is bright red, like you're doing box squats or something and you're like, oh, my God, I'm bleeding, you you may just have some more external type hemorrhoids. And, you know, and again, it's it's kind of thing people don't talk about Uh, as far as tips for any of this stuff. I don't know, witch hazel, you know, is something that people use a lot to try to calm that down and try to clean up and heal up that area and stuff like that. So, um, 
But yeah, it's sensitive type stuff. It, it also can make lifters panic because lifters do struggle with stuff like hemorrhoids, you know, and and that kind of stuff. But yeah, and I've wondered how much of that, and I haven't looked into the research on this at all. Is like you were saying possibly related to the fact that they're doing such a hard, you know, Valsalva or they're doing such a hard um, pressure, like, on a lot of lifts. So if I'm watching somebody's video and let's say they deadlift 405 for easy math and they're doing 225 and it just looks really heavy and they have to use super high amounts of pressure. Turning purple. Eh, yeah, that's, that's making me worried. Yeah. Because um, I think they're probably their heavy compensation is to overpressurize everything, which mm-hmm. you know, I think you should only use the amount of tension you need to lift the load. Uh, and obviously, if you're moving it faster or heavier, you're going to have more tension. But if your light warm-ups look like the exact same amount of heavy tension, that, that makes me a little worried. But that probably scares all the power lifters, and mm. then they ask how much you squat, and that's the end of that question. <laughs> you know, the in- <laughs> right. The interesting flip side of that is some pressure, like in that uh, around the, the spine and whatnot, is, is stabilizing in a sense. You know, you got sure. your belt cranked way down, and you're purposely trying to pressurize that whole area, maybe for musculoskeletal reasons, but yeah, but then that, you know, you're you're creating a distension and a lot of harsh, you know, um, blood flow kind of situations there too but um here's one that again digested that i think a lot of lifters probably deal with but it's like it's gurgling with their stomach like you're talking about digestive (laughs) issues uh so what would you suggest to someone if they're always you know maybe they're taking a lot of protein powders creatine Mm -hmm. um whatever Uh, is there something they can do or even fish oils with the burps and stuff do you have any tips for what people might do with dealing with that you know maybe they're over concentrating their shakes or i don't know yeah so a couple things with with fish oil usually i will have them if it's capsules put them in the freezer Uh, sometimes that seems to help um i usually have them will change the the brand or drop the dose usually that helps um and sometimes people just don't tolerate fish oil very well but i haven't found that to be true usually it's uh, brand or, or dose related issue. Well, some people I think get the burps worse. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there are those enteric coated ones that are supposed to not yep. dissolve as quickly until they're down into your intestines, right? So, yeah. And then with, uh, I'm a big fan of doing dietary rotations on people that have uh, weird digestion stuff. So if they've got you know a whole bunch of digestion things and they just feel kind of achy and they've got other stuff going on, uh, in worst case, I may actually have them do like an elimination diet where they're eating just basically protein, meat, uh, not really any dairy, not really any gluten, trying to eliminate as much of the things as possible. Common offenders, yeah. Yep, common offenders, possibly nightshades if you want to go really far, and do that for like pretty strict for like four to eight weeks, and then see how they feel. And if everything starts feeling good, everything's going up, you know, then kind of slowly reintroducing kind of one food at a time. Um, you can spend a lot of money on allergy tests and different things like that. I'm not entirely sold at this point that they're that useful. I agree. A lot of them are immune based. Yep. And I have seen testing uh, on a buddy of mine. He had all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, his wife was a natural path, so she could get testing pretty reasonable. So he's like, yeah, I'll, you'll see what it is. He was like off the charts for like tons of stuff. Yes. And, 
sure as heck, he, you know, eliminates those. You know, he does a bunch of other stuff, retests in like four months. And it was only like a couple that were high. Um, you know, because if it's immune-based, if your immune system is all ramped up, you know, there's probably going to be a whole bunch of things that are offending you. But that, you know, doesn't necessarily mean you have to avoid those for like the rest of your life either. Um, right, yeah. So I think it may be okay as a snapshot in time. No. But again, what do you do, right? So that you're back to probably doing some type of elimination diet anyway, and then slowly reintroducing foods at that point. Yeah. I also, when it comes to powders, just dilute the stuff, please. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I recruited my brother into a study when I was in grad school, create, we had some of the early creatine stuff that was going sure. on. And I told him, now, you know, this is actually before creatine was even widely sold. So we got it from like Sigma Chemical or, you know, one of these Fisher Scientific oh, yeah. or whatever. Not like necessarily for people, <laughs> but hundreds and hundreds of dollars, like a half pound. Right. No, <laughs> right. Exactly. And, but he would put like a big scoop in a fairly small cup of coffee. And I'm like, dude, you can't do that. You know, you have to dilute this enough that you, you know, you don't end up with some kind of osmotic diarrhea. And he wouldn't mm -hmm. listen. And, so after that study, you know, he got diarrhea. He's making this stuff too strong because of the osmotic draw. And I can only imagine if people throw protein on top of their creatine in a small volume of fluid. So my usual advice for people is use twice as much water as it'll even call for on a label these days. You know, because he's like, he's like, screw you, man. I'm not doing your studies anymore. You're killing me. I'm like, you're killing yourself. <laughs> There's nothing toxic about the creatine or the protein. It's you're making it too strong. You know, and water seeks to dilute, right, as a general rule, biology. So the water just rushes out of your viscera, like your abdominal cavity, and into this very concentrated protein-creatine shake that you made too strong. So I would suggest before people jump into digestive enzymes and all that crap, just mm -hmm. dilute it, you know, mm -hmm. dilute it a little bit. But, oh, by the way, what do you think about digestive enzymes, Mike, for for people yeah. with issues? Yeah. Um... So I have used digestive enzymes like Wobenzyme and other things like um, for a systemic type thing, like in between meals, so not necessarily with a meal. You know, the theory there is that you're trying to you know, clean up some soft tissue and other sort of misfolded proteins, things of that nature. Eh, not really super good evidence on that, but anecdotally they seem to help, but you needed like really high doses to do it. Um with a meal, I have used them with a few people. Nah, seems to help a little bit. The only one that I've used that does seem to help is uh, betaine hydrochloride. So the theory is that some people have uh, low acid production in their stomach, which can be affected by other things they have going on, that by adding some of that in, their ability to digest protein is better. So if I have someone who like I had someone recently who was just not digesting, you know, like chicken and meat and not dairy, but things that are not really common offenders. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so breakfast, you know, just have, you know, four ounces of a chicken breast, see how you feel. Oh my God, my stomach, I can like, it's huge and distended and horrible. So I'm like, well, you know, add a few capsules of this and see if it's better. Oh, wow. That's how oh, it didn't get really weird and distended. So you probably know there's something going on with that. Um, in a perfect world, you want to work with a, a functional med doc or someone to get all those things sorted out. Good, good advice, right? Yeah, Mike yeah. and I are not physicians, right? We're just, no. I mean, just I, I have worked with real patients, but stuff to try, so you can go in and go, hey, you know, what about this? Or I did this and I noticed this. 
Um, yeah. And I have noticed on myself that if my stress level is a lot higher, that I probably do need some of that. If my stress level goes down, then it doesn't bother me at all. So, again, probably stress related to the immune system most likely. Right. You know, it's worth noting that medicine has moved on. It's not. No, it's no longer hokey or mystical. This mind-body link. I mean, psychoneuroendocrinology is a real thing. You know, and I read a, a fact in a textbook recently. This I can't provide a reference. It was just a textbook, but it was a good one. And it said there are actually more neurons, more nerve cells in your gut, in your intestinal mm-hmm. tract, than in your spinal cord. So that's interesting to me, right? There's. Obviously, the, uh, the, the, your gastrointestinal tract has, it, in a way, its own nervous system, you know, hormones and nervous system communication. And so, yeah, that's a good point, Mike, about if you're under an enormous amount of stress. But the problem with these things is these are vague symptoms sometimes. And oh, yeah. there could be something really wrong that you need to go get some blood work, some medical tests, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, you, you can't just chalk it up to some kind of mild gastritis. or And it's true, gastritis is going to be irritating, it's literally, you know, irritated stomach. And, you know, alcohol and NSAIDs, I mean, all the ibuprofen and stuff that Phil and I are always popping. I, Mike, are you a big NSAID <laughs> guy like we are? No, I hate <laughs> NSAIDs. I, I whacked my knee in a go-kart accident a couple of days ago, or probably nine days ago now. I got whacked when I was in Chicago, and... I think I've taken like two halves of an aspirin only when I was flying because oh. I'm like, well, a little blood thinner since it's all black and blue probably won't hurt. But yeah, I, yeah. I tend to avoid them as much as I can. Yeah. Oh, hey, one last thing before we move on, um, because this came up in my household. My wife is like, I smell mint. You know, like I like I burp mint, and, and I'm like, sh- sh- we're not hmm. taking mint oil or anything. They will actually, in some of the, those enteric fish oils, you uh, smell mint. Yeah. They're putting it in there, so when you burp, it's more pleasant. If if, if you do end yeah. up with the fish oil burp, so it's just something to think about. It, and again, I think they put it in those enteric coated ones because the claim on those is that you don't get the fish oil burps as much, and that might be partially true. But I think they're trying to mask it a little bit too, and you wouldn't know it. Unless one of them ruptures, and maybe a listener, if this happened to you, let, let us know. But, um, yeah, if, if one of the gel caps ruptures in the bottle, man, the smell of mint that comes out of there. You're like, oh, those sneaky bastards. They're trying to, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe these ones that are offensive. not enterically coated that are strawberry flavored. <laughs> oh, mm. there you go. Not bad. Okay. Um, when we are talking before we hit record, let's move on a little bit, too. Um that's more gastric, right? Uh, digestive mm-hmm. tract. Uh, you had brought up frequent urination. What are some of the yeah. things that lifters might experience with that? Yeah, the simple one is, and this has happened to me and it's happened to people I work with too, especially online, is that you'll drop their carbohydrates pretty low, maybe like on an off day, and they're used to a pretty high carbohydrate uh, amount. Or if people try to do a ketogenic diet and they're not sure exactly what they're doing, or even if they are pretty good with it, when you start losing a huge amount of glycogen, if you start really massively dropping your carbohydrates, uh, you will spend a lot of time running back and forth to the bathroom all of a sudden, which can be a little scary if you <laughs> if you don't know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, so you're referring to like as you break down your glyc- glycogen stored with water? And right. So as you break down right. the, so you're, you're, you're shedding the extra water. And you're just shedding a whole bunch of extra water at the same time too. So and you know, as I was, you know, 
diuretic effects if you're kind of doing a, a ketogenic type diet and your you know fats are super high you've dropped your carbs to almost nothing your proteins are kind of moderate and why am I you know, a lot of people aren't real good with managing fluids and electrolytes when they first start doing that either so yeah I can tell you something I experience a lot. I'm actually glad the bathroom to my office at the university is across the hall because, <laughs> I, you know, I, I drink ready-to-drink protein drinks. Um, sometimes I'll just prepare some protein drinks before I go to work. Uh, but between that and the coffee that I consume, forget it. I mean, because both of these things will make you urinate more. Now, I need to be mm-hmm. clear about this. Coffee and protein drinks don't dehydrate you. Uh, yeah. You know, you hear. I, I still hear dietitians sometimes say that. Uh, not all, but no, that's not the problem. Yes, you are peeing more, and you might you say, oh, "How does that not dehydrate you?" Well, because you have hormonal systems and thirst mechanisms in place, you're just going to go drink more fluids. You know, but gosh, yes, I mean, the combination of coffee and protein uh, will make you pee. Uh, what I used to collect urine samples, right, as part of uh, like nitrogen balance studies or. Um, Oh, for all kinds of reasons. With people who use pre-workouts and, and that sort of mm-hmm. stuff, we we're looking at like uh, metabolites of adrenaline, their pee, and this and that. And the guys who consume extra uh, protein, just on the protein side, by their diet records, they will easily double or triple the urine output. So an average person mm. pees about 1,500 cc's a day. These guys are cranking out 3,000, 3,500 you know, milliliters of pee a day. And I'm like, whoa. So, I mean, there's a very clear difference. I should also point out this does not stress or harm your kidneys. There's an old school thing that some dietitians and nurses and health educators will talk about, which is the Brenner hypothesis, which is if you ask your kidneys to filter more fluid, that somehow overworks them and hurts them. But no, it doesn't. That that was a theory that's been largely debunked. Protein does not harm healthy kidneys. If you have high blood pressure and diabetes, you have some fundamental changes in the filtration apparatus in your kidneys. And I'm not going to go on about the glomerulus here, but you get changes. They, they thicken uh, in different ways because of the, the sugary blood and the high pressures. Those people, yeah, might want to avoid lots of protein. But I'm talking about healthy lifters. If you're peeing a lot, again, it's worth getting checked because polydipsia, polyuria, as a physician will call it, that could be an indicator of diabetes and other things. Mm -hmm. But if you're chugging coffee and protein like me, (laughs) then you're going to pee more. (laughs) You're just going to pee more. And it's not going to, don't worry about dehydration as long as you, you know, drink according to thirst and, and that sort of thing. Now I will say during a workout, thirst will lag behind need, but usually during the day, thirst is not a bad indicator. Um, there's also prostate enlargement. So, you know, if you're an older lifter or you're dabbling with androgens, then you could have a slightly enlarged prostate. Some stimulants will swell your prostate too, like ephedra. Um, mm. But usually that's a problem. That's a problem urinating, period, you know, as opposed to peeing too much. So, yeah, there's also the kind of urinary stuff that I think is unique to lifters because, you know, we're focusing on stuff pre workouts, uh, supplements, coffee in the protein. Uh, and let's not forget, too, coffee and protein shakes, it's amazing the volume of fluid you'll consume and not really think about it. You know, like, oh, I just drank a liter. I just drank almost two liters of coffee and protein. Well, just the volume is going to make you pee, you know, not just the substance, yeah. you know. So. Yeah. A good tip I got from uh, Reese Vano, who's an RD. She was speaking also at the NSC event. I was speaking at a yeah, couple weeks great. ago. Yep. Um, yeah, she's awesome. And she was saying, instead of trying to use the 
color of your urine, like, you know, unless you're outside in extreme environments or something like that. <clears throat> she said, if you're inside, just, you know, try to go to the bathroom every couple hours, you know, two, three, four hours. And if you're doing that, you're probably plenty hydrated. But if you whiz like once a day or not that often, yeah, you probably need to drink a lot more. So I yeah. thought that was a very good and practical indicator instead of trying to go, oh, my pee's a little more yellow now. Oh, it's not yellow. Well, I took a multivitamin. Oh, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> right. Lots of reasons. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's even a nighttime tip, too, that really the rule of thumb for clinicians is you shouldn't get up to pee more than twice a night. If you're peeing twice or more, like get up. Wow, that's uh, high. Uh, I will I will often get up and go pee in the middle of the night, but sometimes I'll drink chamomile tea before I go to bed or, you know, there's a little sure. bit of fluid overload, so you go pee. But if you're getting up twice or more, it does suggest maybe keep an eye on that or, you know, talk to your doctor or something like that. Um, how about, the, Mike, you had mentioned uh, crushing fatigue or upper respiratory tract infections and things like that mm-hmm. from like from overtraining. How about your thoughts on that? Yeah, so there's always a debate about is, you know, overtraining syndrome or OTS a real thing? And yes, it is a real thing. Um, Will most people ever really get to that? Probably not. Um, You're not going to get to it by doing a half hour, even an hour a day, unless the rest of your life is just complete, utter, chaotic hell. (laughs) Um, But you can get to more of an overreaching state, probably, in my experience with athletes, sooner than people think. Um, so overreaching and the difference between that and overtraining syndrome, if you use uh, Dr. Bill Kramer's definition, uh, they would say that you're probably in an overreached state if you take two weeks kind of off from training and you're kind of back to where you were before. If you're taking more than two weeks off and you still feel like you've been run over by a truck and you've got maybe sleep disturbances, you've got a bunch of other stuff going on, yeah, now depending upon your training load, you maybe more into a overtraining syndrome type area. And the downside if you get overtraining syndrome is it's a real bugger to get out of. Yes, it's it is. It's definitely a very a long process. It's not something that you're going to get rid of in a couple of weeks. And you've talked to, you know, some elite athletes I've talked to who've had this in the past. I mean, they've done very intelligent things, worked with very smart clinicians and everybody else, and they'll even tell you three, four Five years later, they still don't feel like they used to. There's not a lot of really good research on that either. Um, But I like using heart rate variability, you know, or you could even use resting heart rate each morning to keep an eye on where you're at. Obviously, training performance is a really big one. Yes. Um, Going to the gym. I mean, how many people even ever write down any freaking thing that they did? It's like, how do you even know what you did last week, you know? Um, if your performance is trending down and you're not doing that on purpose, you're not trying to purposely overreach yourself, then you've probably got something going on. Um, the hard part with that too is you can't necessarily pay attention to the amount of fatigue you're generating because you will feel like you're putting in quote unquote more work and you'll feel worse. You know, so a lot of people are very much, you know, fatigue seekers going to the gym instead of, uh, performance seekers. Um, so even if I work with a, a few physique athletes, we always track their performance because that's what's going to drive the adaptations that they want. And if I see that their HRV score is starting to tank, resting heart rate's going up, and their performance is starting to drop pretty heavily, you know, now I know that we probably need to to pull back 
And some people, that may be three, four weeks into a new program. Sometimes it's seven weeks in. You know, you know it's pretty variable. I, I need to put up on the home page. For a while, I, I just put up a free, it's an Excel spreadsheet I had. It was based loosely on some work from researchers that look at over training Kelman. Uh, Ken mm-hmm. Ta is another. There's a, they have a fantastic book. I geeked out. I read it cover to cover called Enhancing Recovery. And the spreadsheet tries to uh, use like the RPE model. Like instead of yeah. how, instead of perceiving how hard you're working out during exercise, it's like this past week, where was I on a 20 scale with my effort? And then you had to put things back with naps and meals and proactive things. I don't know, hot, cold contrast showers or massage. I know some of these things are a little more um, debatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the whole idea is you, you, you treat your body like a business and you don't overspend yeah. yet, right? Those fatigue seekers, they're overspending their resources. And uh, God, I, I used to look at a lot of work from Dr. Andy Fry. And I always yeah. thought Andy Fry's stuff was funny because he fries people <laughs> you know, yeah, with overtraining. <laughs> and he does that. He had college men, and I've mentioned this years ago, but they would do a, a 10 one rep maxes a day for like two weeks. Yeah. Oh my God. And try to, and he would induce sympathetic type overtraining um, and that, all that kind of fatigue and whatnot. But I, I want to ask you one thing, Mike, because I'm, I'm trying to keep an open mind, but clinically, th- most clinicians, licensed professionals don't buy into this. And I'm not sure I do entirely. And that's the concept of adrenal fatigue. <laughs> now, like you hear yeah. this float around a lot. Now, are we talking about Addison's disease? Because, you know, if you don't, yeah. if you can't produce some of these stress hormones, uh, there's some very classic symptoms that go with Addison's disease. But I think it's much more likely, again, based on Andy Fry's work, that you lose some of your adrenaline receptor density, you know, because mm-hmm. you're over, you're always at all this background adrenaline from too much intensity all the time. I think you lose some receptor density and you can't respond. Like some of his research said after frying these guys with those 10 one rep maxes daily, they had 40% reduced, like, um, I don't know, beta adrenergic receptors, I think it was. Yeah. And imagine, so then you have, you, but I don't think it's that your adrenals are fatigued. I think it's just that your tissues can't respond. And I think there's a fundamental confusion about that. But trying to keep an open mind, what do you think about adrenal fatigue? Oh, so my short answer is, I think something like it, quote unquote, exists. And I'll come back to that. Um, I, I agree with you that if you go by the formal definition, there isn't anything, right? So by strict definition, it sounds like Addison's disease, which most of these people don't have, right? So right. if you go in and do some some more follow-up tests, you can figure out what sort of part of the link is breaking down. Um, my biased opinion, although I haven't seen any research on this, is I actually think that it's very similar or a mild version of overtraining syndrome. If you compare <clears throat> all the symptoms of the two, they almost match like identically. Um, I don't think that most people get to that state necessarily by training too hard, unless you're a subject in any Fry study. Um, right. But what I've seen is it's lifestyle stuff that's compounded. Um, so I had something very similar to that once I finished my PhD. I knew I was getting it probably about. With three years left to go, I went and had a bunch of blood work done. My testosterone was like 250. Everything was a mess. Like all my health parameters, cholesterol, that kind of stuff was fine. Anything else was just in the tank. And it didn't really do much about it because I'm like, well, I know it's sleep. I know it's stress. I know it's everything else. 
you know, at that time, I was supposed to be done in a year. I thought, I'll write it out. We'll be fine. Well, that kind of turned into three years. <laughs> and by the time I got done, I was just like, I just want to finish this and not do any, you know, irreplaceable or, or you know, harmful things to my body that I can't recover from later. Um, but after that, I took five months, you know, did some more nutrition. I just did mostly light cardio stuff. I couldn't really do any weight training, was sleeping, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours a night and <laughs> right. still wasn't better. So I went back to a functional med doc, um, did some uh, pregnenolone, some DHA for a while, some other stuff, did all the digestion things. And, you know, eventually it's, it's better. I mean, I'd say now in some ways I'm much better than I was. Yeah, some ways not quite back to where I was. Um, but it's weird, like when, and I had just a crap ton of testing done. There's not really one definitive test that will tell you that, right? And if you look at overtraining syndrome, there's not one definitive test you can say, oh, boom, you have overtraining syndrome. So I think it falls in that sort of, you know, multi system type thing. Um, and that it's, that's what makes it harder to. And I think it's just human nature that when we have those type of symptoms, which again could be, you know, everything from whatever insert disease here, they all overlap. Um, but you want to have that name. You want to sort of identify with something because that kind of gives you control back. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's kind of why the name and those types of things have kind of uh, hung around. But my bias is that I think it's kind of a milder version of like an overtraining syndrome, right. but more lifestyle related, less training. Yeah. Some of the same researchers that I mentioned, uh, Kelman, Kenta, Fry. Um, there's definitions in the literature that overtraining syndrome, and that's, by the way, why I started that Excel file. I mean, I had I had like um, cold sores. I, I was mm -hmm. crushed. I mean, mono-like symptoms, like crushed on yeah. the couch. And some of the definitions in the literature say even eight weeks of complete abstinence from training doesn't fix it. That's yeah. hardcore. You know, uh, your immune system tanks because you're not making like immunoglobulin A. You start getting upper yep. respiratory tract. I was getting uh, head sick. colds constantly. Yep. And, you know, I was at, at first at the time I was working at a gym and, you know, you're cleaning bathrooms and stuff and that'll make you sick or just exposure. But, yeah, you have no defenses, you know, and so that stuff can get very serious and it's really hard to correct, you know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not an easy answer to say just sleep it off or you know there's even some really wacky gurus that say there's no such thing as overtraining it's just under eating that's not correct uh, that's I, insane yes yeah there's <laughs> there are time issues and i measured like 18 different variables in my dissertation with some of these recovery things and white cell count and like you said depressed sex hormones um mm -hmm. the elevated cortisol there's lots of things th that are part of this depressed glycogen stores i mean there's all kinds of stuff and I, I like what you said a lot. There is no one variable that says I am overtrained. You know, yeah. you could do a biopsy or a blood draw and say, oh, look, glutamine is way down because that's pretty common. But again, there's you know how you said people like to put a name on it. I think people also like to put a single mechanism on it. You know, Keith oh, Miller yeah. was talking about that at the conference, right, about we want to say that, boom, endorphins give you the runner's high. Well, it's way more complicated than that. Or, you know, boom, adrenal fatigue. You, you can't make adrenaline. That's why you feel like crap. But wow, it's way more complicated than that, I think. So Yeah, and I think at a base level, it's just the body. If you believe the body is survival-based, which I do, it's just trying to protect itself, right? And I've seen people with their HRV just completely flip within a couple of days. 
or they're really sympathetic, really sympathetic, and that goes on for months and months, and then all of a sudden, within a couple of days, they become extremely parasympathetically overtrained, right? So now they they report, I'm laying on the couch, I'm basically drooling on myself, I can't get up to do anything. <laughs> right, yeah. Right? And you look at their score, and you go, wow, they're, quote-unquote, extremely recovered. Well, their body is just whacked, their parasympathetic so high, rest and digest, it's literally just shutting them down. It's like, hey, you stupid human, you've been doing all this stuff, creating more stress and stress. We're basically going to pull the string on your back and you're going to not do anything because we can't take it anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's so many hormonal – like the endocrine system is so interrelated. Even I've even seen uh, research with college women that if they undereat and overtrain for even – a period of just like a week or two, they can start to have like a decrease in thyroid function. I mean, there's lots oh, of sure. things that, that's going to put you on your ass. And it's not just like, oh, my adrenals aren't making adrenaline because that's mm-hmm. that's it's I, I think that's a little silly. And that's one of the things I wish would go away in physique sports. There's yeah. so much talk about adrenal fatigue, but it's not as simple as your your adrenal glands, by the way, which sit on top of your kidneys, everybody. That's also where your cortisol comes from, different parts of the gland. But yeah, it's not just you can't make the hormone because that's probably not accurate. So Yeah, and if you look at, like, and there's been a couple studies on this too on physique competitors, and I've got some HRV on them too, like post-show, and you know from doing shows, Lonnie, you're you're a wreck, right? And people think that they're going to go out and six months later do another show. It's like, no. <laughs> yeah, the guys that compete regularly, there were a couple of pro bodybuilders back in the heyday, and they would compete like, eight times a year and i think oh. people need to realize these guys have serious <laughs> endocrine support <laughs> oh yeah. you know they're on all kinds of gas <laughs> and stuff that helps them recover and no no doubt because you know phil calls it olympic flu uh yeah and i would take a period of six weeks after i would compete and i would just do like a slow refeed and try to rest mm-hmm. and you got to have a sense of balance like you said and i what i like what you do with the the hormone or i'm sorry the uh heart rate variability is it's not trying to look at any one hormone. It's sort of an outcomes measure, right? Your heart yeah. is telling you, wow, you know, my beat-to-beat variability is shot, <laughs> you yeah. know, in a lot of ways. And I know there's more to it than that. You're the expert on that. But I like that it's a simple, non-invasive test. And it's really pretty sensitive, like you said. In a, I, I, I wasn't aware that you could almost flip a switch and you can watch it, you know, like almost like the body reaches some threshold and then things change and you could kind of sense that you know, you can measure it. So. Yeah, and that's the nice part, too, is it's assessing your autonomic nervous system, which isn't everything, but it's a big portion of it. And the other part, too, is that people forget that a lot of the stressors that they're under, they're actually unconscious, too. And the cool part about having a measurement is that you can kind of figure out a little bit, kind of like peeling the onion, you know, what is really, you know, stressful to that individual because it's extremely different from one person to the next, too. Yeah. I got one more because we're almost out of time. Yeah. One more malady. This is unrelated. Uh, and we've done whole episodes on overtraining and we could do more. You know, there's, it's fun to talk about that stuff. Yeah. It's so multifaceted. But what about um, excessive calluses or torn calluses? Like, I sincerely doubt that Phil Stevens wears lifting gloves. <laughs> uh, I would I've love to see it. it. I want to see as I've known him. <laughs> I want to see him put some on, like on you know Instagram or Twitter or something. <laughs> Here's how I do it. You know, it's it's almost comical. But I can tell you, like when I've I've done little stints of 
uh, quasi powerlifting. I've never competed in powerlifting, but and where the bar hits you is a little bit different. Uh, like from my usual bodybuilding fair, you know, I get these thick calluses along the the base of of my fingers. But then, like, it's more like in the dead palm of your hand sometimes, or mm. or like I'll rake the yard and I'll and I'll be like, oh my god, you know, I have a blister. How can that possibly be? I have like barbells with hundreds of pounds on them. <laughs> you know, it's because it's in a slightly different area. But mm-hmm. have you experienced that, or do you deal with clients that that deal with that? And and what do you tell them? Yeah, so I was a moron with this for a while. I did not do anything. Nobody <laughs> told me any different, and. I was doing deadlifts one day, and I ripped a huge callus off my pinky area, Ooh. and not just like a bold, like I ripped it off, and oh, that is the most sensitive, like, you know, once that's gone, the tissue under there is so sensitive, you can't get anything to stick to it, you can't get band-aids to stick. It, it just shuts you down, too, in the gym, doesn't it? It, it was horrible. I didn't think that it was really going to be that bad, and then, you know, so once that finally healed... Um, then I started doing a lot more kettlebell work at this time. And because of the repetitive nature of kettlebells, oh. especially when you're learning, mm-hmm. you're not very good at that you know, grip control of when to tighten, when to release. Um, so I asked somebody then, and they're like, oh, you don't do anything for your calluses? And I sent them a picture, and they're like, oh, my God, man. <laughs> like extra yeah. things sticking out of your hands. So yeah. what I did then was uh, – I still do now sometimes is if you soak your hands, uh, like you take a long hot Epsom bath or something, uh, soak them, you can actually get like some callus cutters. They don't work the greatest, but they can kind of get a couple layers down, especially when you do it after they're wet, dry your hands a little bit. And then I like using, they're hard to find. I, I broke the last one I've had for quite a while. It literally looks almost like a cheese grater. <laughs> it's Ooh. got a handle on it mm-hmm. and it's got very rough, uh, texture on it. I gotta find another one, but I'll do that like after I shower. Oh, just try to mm-hmm. take some of the layers down a yeah, little don't, bit. Don't they? Um, I don't want to sound sexist, but don't women use files like that for like the rough heels and stuff like that? The cheese grater looking type things. Yeah, yeah. They've got some like pumice stones, and they've got some other stuff. And I found the like the more gnarly cheese grater looking thing it is, <laughs> better it works. <laughs> um. And the last part on that, too, is that if you look where your calluses are, another part to check is actually your hand and finger strength, right? So I'll check clients' calluses, and, you know, normally it's going to be pinky, and then as you come up, it's going to be less and less, because if you take your uh, thumb and index together, that's much stronger than your thumb and your pinky together. So when you're you're losing, the calluses are actually from a shear stress across the skin, so basically sliding something across it. So normally you've got more at your pinky side because your pinky is going to open up first. The bar is going to kind of rip through there. Um, so even doing stuff with like pin strength and other specific uh, finger strength, like uh, open hand, um, like a plate curl. So you have your hand open, put your thumb on top, and then curl a plate with your hand actually open. Mm, um, yeah. And some specific strength like that, you can kind of help uh, even just supportive grip stuff. Right, so isometric holds, things of that nature. Um, so if you can increase the strength in your grip, then that limits some of that shearing stress too, which can help quite a bit. No, that's good advice. I I, I was always just bush league. I would take some toenail clippers and just go after them. I think Phil does oh, that too, and, and so just hard. just kind of you know just cut them off, man. I don't know, <laughs> but at least if you do that every so often, 
or like you're saying, like whether you're grading it off or clipping some off, you're keeping it from getting so big that it's going to tear yeah. a ch- half a you know half your hand away in a giant chunk. You know, because it's so frustrating. Like to like you can't go to the gym. Like your muscles are ready. Oh. You, you you feel energized. You and you can't if your hands are are effed. <laughs> you can't hold yeah. anything, and it it just ruins. It's so frustrating. So yeah, at least trying to keep them smaller. However, you choose to do it, uh, people. Um, I, I, that's my only real tip, you know, because the bigger they get, the more likely they're going to have just this sort of hard, chewy mass in the middle of your hand and, and, and tear, you know, so. Yeah. And last thing too, I was down here kiteboarding last year and I, I got a bunch of calluses on my hands. So I was riding for like four days in a row. And so I usually will tape them now or wear some very light gloves because I get them in weird spots that I don't get from lifting. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the other part I've noticed with that too, is if <clears throat> you look at the end of the day, You've got one just kind of coming up. If you can make sure not to break it, I found that they can heal pretty fast. But if you've got that kind of blister that comes up and then you pop that or it breaks open and you've got that just, you know, skin underneath that's uber sensitive now, man, that seems to take a long time to heal. Yeah. So even some days of just if you're starting to get, you know, weird blister somewhere which you haven't had it. If you can tape it or just keep the stress off it for a day or two, you're probably going to be okay. If you really push it and it kind of breaks open, then you're kind of screwed. You know, for that's a, while. a good call with the with the blisters at least. Greg, I look at calluses yeah. as more of a positive adaptation in a lot of ways. Yeah. Blisters are you, yeah, you've overdone it. Yeah, and yeah, I would tend to leave the skin on top of it a little bit, like you said. Let let your body yep. reabsorb the fluid, or if you. If you poke it with a mm-hmm. pin or something, as opposed to uh, you have to keep your hands clean. You don't want to get something like that infected, of course. But um, okay, well, that's a huge list of quasi medical, yeah. just shit that happens to us. Um, it only took us initially before we started recording. What, like two or three minutes to come up with like ten items, right? It's like so, you know. So what do you? What have you endured in the last couple of decades? Yeah. Well, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> okay. Um, well, Phil is traveling. I think he mentioned everybody uh, last show that he's up in uh, California hanging out with some of his powerlifting buddies up there and family trip and all that. So uh, he's away this week, which is why, <laughs> you know, when you leave the he helm to, to, to the nerds, <laughs> you're going to get some, you know, uh, yeah. lecture like this. But hopefully there were some tips in there or facts that you either didn't know or uh, reminded you, you know, and that sort of thing. So. Uh, okay. Well, cool. Cool stuff. We'll, uh, I guess we'll see everybody next week. Yeah. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our halls of iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, Lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at Phil's hall of iron and if you want something about motivation or daily training Fortress's hall has what you're looking for There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we 
put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.